Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, uh, how's the UK? Has Boris Johnson invited you to a uh, to a party yet? It's basically all he does. Uh, no ragers here. Um, I, I, I guess I'm in the wrong social circles to hit the Tory party circuit. There was, well, let me say this, Tommy. There's a huge cocaine scandal that blew up the day I got here involving a conservative MP. Pun intended. So, uh, really? Yeah. Like, remember we talked about cocaine parties? We did. Yes, there, too. How could I forget? There was a... Like a, a the the Tory whip um, was like caught in some very compromising scene uh, with some cocaine and uh, let's say a woman who didn't appreciate his advances. It, so you know it, it fit with what we talked about in the the before times before we obviously had a war to talk about. But uh, the the cocaine parties appear to still be going strong here in the Tory party. Wow, maybe Madison Cawthorn was just confused and he was actually in London when all this went down and we just, yeah. we just cracked the case. <laughs> so totally doing some um, investigative work out here. Yeah, good for you. Thanks for cracking that case for us. Yeah, like Sherlock Holmes over there. Well, um, two quick housekeeping items. Uh, check out the latest episode of Crooked's newest podcast, Strict Scrutiny, to catch up on Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearings. Each week, law professors Leah Lippman, Kate Shaw, and Melissa Murray use their experience to help you understand the inner workings of the Supreme Court decisions, its culture, the personalities, the fantastic show. Also this week on America Dissected, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed talks with David Miliband, the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, about the refugee crisis in Ukraine and what it means for our double standard for refugees. So check out both of those shows wherever you get your podcasts. So um, we are going to talk about the war in Ukraine, uh, including the horrifying images uh, of Russian war crimes that came out over the weekend, just like shocking stuff. Uh, I also interview uh, Anastasia Lapatina uh, from the Kiev Independent about what it's like to cover this war and to experience it so personally. I mean, her house was shelled, her mom's apartment was ransacked. And then it was just, it was really interesting talking to her about like what the what the meaning of bias even is anymore as a reporter or as a journalist whose home has has been invaded by a a foreign army is a really thoughtful conversation. She, again, like another conversation with the Ukrainian where you know she speaks like four languages and perfect English, and I can like barely pronounce words to save my life, and just such an impressive uh, journalist. Yeah, I um, I have to say, um, amidst everything else in this war, like. The quality of the Ukrainian journalists um, who are risking everything to cover this, even as their families and friends are, in some cases, killed. I mean, is 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 one of the uh, one of the many astonishing things about Ukrainians. I mean, the really incredibly young journalists at times too, just doing remarkable reporting. Yes, truly. Um, we are also going to talk about uh, in in outside Ukraine news the upcoming French elections. Uh, Victor Orban's very depressing victory in Hungary, political turmoil in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, the ceasefire in Yemen that we all are crossing our fingers and hope uh, holds for a while, and then why COVID funding got chopped from uh, a Senate bill recently. But Ben, let's let's start in Ukraine uh, because as we previewed you, the, the news over the weekend was truly horrifying. We talked last week about how the Russians were going to pull back the military from Kiev and focus on the east. They did that, and that's allowed the Ukrainian forces to get into these areas. It's allowed journalists to get into the areas that have been occupied and cut off. And what they found was wide-scale evidence of war crimes. Uh, in the town of Bucha, hundreds of citizens were were executed. They're bound, shot, left in the streets. There were mass graves. There are stories about rape, torture, people on the brink of starvation. Um, afterwards, you know, after this news came out, President Biden reiterated his belief that Putin has committed war crimes. Uh, President Zelensky visited Bucha. You could literally see the, the the pain on his face. He called it genocide. The State Department says they believe what happened in Bucha is not an isolated incident, but a systemic effort. So you have to worry about what else we're going to find in cities that have been occupied. 
in response, uh, Germany and France expelled a bunch of Russian diplomats. European countries are now talking about banning coal, uh, oil, maybe gas, although the, the Germans are really dragging their feet on on banning oil and gas because they're so reliant on it still. Biden says there's gonna be more sanctions uh, and then he wants to put Putin on trial basically for war crimes. So, you know, it, it seems likely that Russia is now gonna double down on taking and holding territory in Eastern Ukraine. This will become a protracted struggle. Um, ben, you know, like building on my, my conversation with Anastasia, I mean, it's hard not to see these images and just feel fucking bloodlust, you know? I, I mean, I was watching the news Saturday, I was texting with you, and I'm sitting there intermittently thinking, like, send them every weapon they want, send in NATO, like, do whatever it takes. But obviously, all the risks of escalation and war are still there, and right, and you don't want to be like intemperate and emotional in these moments. I, I don't know. I, I just wondered how you were thinking about this and dealing with like the horror of these moments, and you know, the moral outrage that comes with seeing what we're seeing, and all the considerations we've talked about earlier about the risk of escalation and and you know, a nuclear armed war. Well, I mean, it, it it was some of the most gut wrenching imagery, imagery you know you'd ever see. And Tommy, what really got me is thinking about what, what are we going to find in, in Mariupol? You know, what are we going to find? In, and this yeah. is one suburb of Kiev, um, and there's no reason to believe that the Russians aren't doing in other places what they did in Bucha. Um, I, you know, I think that the word genocide. Is, is not one you use lightly because it has a very specific meaning, right? It's not just a war crime or a crime against humanity. But in this case, I think we have to actually start thinking about that word because when you look at what they're doing in terms of the, the, the indiscriminate killing of Ukrainians, the deportations of Ukrainians into Russia, and then like the rhetoric around Ukraine shouldn't exist as a country. And there's some Russian state media that is very chilling to read about essentially needing to eliminate Ukraine that that's genocide, you know, and and, and so we're, mm -hmm. we're at a level here where, um, you, you know, we have not seen this in Europe since World War II, uh, and Zelensky was right uh, to to use that word, even as you need to gather evidence and, and build a case to to reach that threshold. But that's the scale of what we're talking about. I, I think for me, you know, first of all, the the continued you know on sanctions. Continuing to send Russia checks every day to buy gas and just feels like morally untenable. And and I know how difficult this is for Europe. And it's maybe easier for us to say that from America where we're not dependent on Russian gas in the same way they are. But I just think that the sanctions have to get to a level where there's not these kind of massive carve outs for tremendous infusions of revenue into Russia um, from the sale of, of oil and gas and, and coal. Europe has started down this road with coal, which is the easiest thing to do. But I do think that you, you can't just keep buying gas from someone that's committing genocide in Europe, you know. And and so I think the sanctions have to escalate. I think on the weapons, um, you know, there's been clearly this effort to draw a distinction between defensive weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, anti-tank weapons, and then weapons that could be used offensively, not just against Russian forces in Ukraine, but potentially, hypothetically, into Russia. And so I think that explains some of the reticence around tanks and planes. But I don't know, man. Like We're, we're drawing boundaries around, uh, around the provision of weapons in dealing with someone who is, in Vladimir Putin, just massacring people. I, I, I would be very open <laughs> to... Um, opening up the aperture on the types of, of weapons that are being provided, like we're already we're already doing this, and um, these people are, are literally in a fight for their very survival, you know. So while I continue yeah. to be totally understanding of the Biden administration's caution around direct escalation and conflict with Russia um, from NATO, um, I do think the 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 kind of restraints that have been imposed on the sanctions and the weaponry. After this, you, you really have to think about um, relaxing those and, and going to places you haven't. And like you, we were texting about this, but like we're only like a, a month and a half into this war. Like it does yeah, make you think, days. where is this going to be in, in six or eight months? And um, that's truly scary to think about above all for Ukrainians. But I mean, it it, it does speak to the the potential for this thing to continue to escalate.
Yeah, look, there's there's risks of escalation, right? But there's also risks to civilians of things dragging on. And yeah, I, I, I too, like no longer understand the lines that are being drawn around what weapon systems are offensive or defense or not. Anastasia and I talked about this. I mean, one country was invaded, therefore what they're trying to do is defend it. Yeah. I, I, at this point, I'm like, give them the MiGs. Give them those Turkish drones give them that tanks, were really yeah, effective yeah. early on. Give them the S-300s. Like, I, I, just don't, I, don't, I feel like we're getting kind of wrapped around the axle. The, the U.S. government is getting wrapped around the axle of some sort of legalistic determination. Uh, and uh, I don't know that that's the right course. The, the other part of this is, you know, you want a peace process. Everyone wants a peace process to be happening. But, you know, when you saw what happened in Bucha, uh, again, like, I don't know how Zelensky can be pressed to cut a deal that leaves hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian citizens living in Russian occupation. You know, yeah. I mean, and meanwhile, the Russians are like gaslighting and they're saying that these videos are are staged and the Ukrainians did a false flag to try. Like, it's just such it's 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 outrageous, insane nonsense. And it's just like it, it, every day this is getting more complicated. Yeah. I, I, on the weapons thing, because I've sat in the exact discussion on the situation room about, you know, defenses versus offensive, but we may be imposing a logic on our own decision making in the US that that like Putin is not, you know, abiding by some no. invisible line, you know, I mean, and, and so I, I think it's time to kind of, again, um, unburden ourselves of, you know, not every constraint. I think, you know, NATO getting involved in this ratchets it up in ways that uh, directly involved that, that, you know, could, could really, um, you know, cross that threshold and escalation <laughs> with a nuclear armed country, obviously, but, but, but yeah, give, giving these people everything that they need to defend themselves and not drawing distinctions between weapons that are going to be used against Russia in any case, uh, makes sense to me on the, on the gaslighting, like you, I, it's it's so offensive to to basically be committing war crimes and then to be, you know, Alex Jonesing it, you know, and these are crisis actors or the Ukrainians are killing people or staging these things or, but I think what we have to remember is that we in the U.S. and in Europe, everybody probably listening to this podcast, uh, just assumes the Russians are gaslighting and that this stuff is happening, but remember that the audience for this Russian garbage is. India, China, you know, uh, nations sitting on the fence in the Middle East and in Africa. And, you know, that's a much more complicated environment. Because <laughs> if you look at Chinese media, they're they're relaying the Russian disinformation. They're, e they're echoing this. They're stuff. echoing it. The yep. Indian media, you know, same thing. And, and so we shouldn't think it's not effective um, just because it's so absurd. And I think that that puts it on on everybody who has any voice, whether it's governments or, you know, media, you know, people like us are a little tiny little piece of this, but like, you know, to, to, to be unequivocal and calling out what this is, which is war crimes and then gaslighting about war crimes. Um, we should not assume that the audience for Russian disinformation is us, you know, it's the, this bigger no, global exactly. audience. And that's why I think, Zelensky is talking to every single parliament that will have him in the world. Like, uh, but we have to be helping him too. Yeah, and, and you know, look, there there are probably some audiences that are more used to these sort of conspiratorial narratives and are more predisposed to believe them. But also, you know, the goal of propaganda is not necessarily to get me to believe your version of events as opposed to my version of events. It's just to confuse everything yep. and to flood the zone exactly. with bullshit. And the Russians know that they can send out Peskov or their foreign minister or whoever just to lie about what happened with impunity. And it'll take the New York Times three days of comparing satellite imagery yeah. from three weeks ago to today to like prove them wrong. And you know, there's no cost for them. They just bullshit, bullshit, bullshit and flood the zone with nonsense. And you know, I think people, when you're in that kind of information environment, you get overwhelmed by it and you get confused and you kind of like maybe give up on trying to find the truth. Yeah. I mean, and this is a really important point you make that like the, the Russians don't care if their narratives even make sense or even if right. they contradict each other. Like, you know, so when, when you know, I, I think I've talked about when they shot down the plane uh, full of civilians over eastern Ukraine in 2014, they, you know, one day it was the Ukrainians shot it down. One day it was it crashed. You know, now it's one day it's like these are crisis actors. The next day it's that the Ukrainians are killing people. Like it's a flood the zone strategy. It's not like a build a cogent narrative that can move. Uh, it, it, and 
and if look, if you think that it's crazy that anyone would believe this, there are a bunch of people in this country that believe that the world is governed by a cabal of, of child sex traffickers, and there are United States senators yeah. asking questions like that. QAnon. Yeah, there are people who believe that that Newtown was a crisis acting to to take away their guns, right? So this stuff tragically works, and the only antidote to it is being, like you said, like the three day investigation is great. But sometimes it's also just like reporting like what's happening without equivocation. You know, um, right. what appears yep. to be happening is what's happening. And what's happening appears to be genocide. Yeah. And look, I, we, we approach that in America with humility, given how badly we fucked up uh, the Iraq war and the run up to it and all the reporting around it. But uh, yeah, I agree. Like it's sometimes, you know, sometimes um, we, I think maybe we need to do a little better job of factoring in the just utter total lack of credibility of the the Russian propaganda machine in this instance. Yeah. So um, we'll hear a lot more about Ukraine uh, in the interview later. But Ben, I want to go to the French election with you because uh, on Sunday the 10th, so five days from when we're recording, French voters go to the polls in the first round of their two-part presidential election process. The current trajectory uh, of that election looks worrisome for President Macron and for anyone who dislikes racist, xenophobic, right-wing nationalists. So the latest polling has Macron getting 28% of the vote, while Marine Le Pen, who is, you know, this, she's a right-winger, she's xenophobic, she's anti-Muslim, there's anti-Semitism throughout her party, but she's she's trying to run this time. The National Rally Party is the more sanitized right-wing option. She's polling at around 21%. And then the even more extreme guy, this guy, Eric Zamora, the former like Tucker Carlson like radio host, is at 11%. So what that means is that Macron and Marine Le Pen will likely win the first round and then they'll go to a head-to-head runoff. In 2017, Macron beat Le Pen in a runoff 66 to 33. Right now, the polling shows him winning by about 54 to 46. So the question is really like, how did that gap shrink that much, right? I mean, has Macron run a bad campaign? Has he been too focused on this, you know, diplomatic effort between Russia and Ukraine while Le Pen is just talking about inflation and rising gas prices? Are people just pissed because of the economy? Are these far-right messages demagoguing Muslims and immigrants resonating? Is it a combo? Like, we don't know yet. But what worries me, Ben, is, you know, candidates like Le Pen, Viktor Orban, who we're going to talk about in a second, uh, often exploit these economic disruptions like the one we've been in because of the pandemic or entering into because of the Russian invasion and do well in elections because they can just, you know, be anti-immigrant and demagogue their way to office. And so, you know, this this gap closing between Macron and Le Pen, even if he ultimately wins a runoff, like it feels like a worrisome trajectory to me. But I don't know. How are you looking at this? Yeah, I mean, and we should be, the other thing I'd say about Le Pen is that this is someone who's been very close to Putin over the years. Um, her party, very close. Her party literally was financed by Russia, which is remarkably yeah. not illegal. Um, and, uh, and they had to trash a bunch of a leaflets that featured her shaking hands with yeah, the Kremlin. I mean, and, so. yeah, like Tucker right. Carlson levels of embrace of, of Putin. Um, she's tried to shift course since the war started, but anyway, you get the picture. I mean, I think that, like, yeah, I think you, you know, Macron is this guy who's tried to kind of stu- he his political strength has also become his weakness, which is that. He's just kind of avowed centrist, right? Um, and that's split apart French politics. And so the left has kind of been fractured into different parties and then the right. Um, but the problem that's left him is there's not like a, a huge intensity of <laughs> pro-Macron voters. Uh, but, you know, you have this far right that is worrisome. Like you said, it's worrisome just how big the far right is. You know, if you add her support plus the other guy, right. you know, you're looking at like a healthy third plus of the French people. And then it may be, and you know, I don't, that that Macron is is kind of so floating in the kind of, you know, neolib centrist space that there are those people who are kind of hard left to the point that they drift to the far right person, you know? Um Right. I still f- and maybe because they are anti-immigrant, right? And yeah. maybe they're like liberal on certain things, but they're just, you know, apparently these messages are really resonating and no one in French politics is willing to push back on far-right theories like the great replacement theory that that you know immigrants are coming in to replace French people and that's like a grand scheme. Here. It's it, very scary. Yeah, and I do think that M- Macron seemed to be running a version of a, a French version of what we call a rose garden strategy, right? Where He's yeah, been calling yeah. Putin and calling Zelensky and agonizing and pictures, you know, of him on the phone. And 
he's got to get out there and campaign. I, I, I'm not that worried, maybe I should be, about him losing because the pattern in previous runoffs, including the last one with Le Pen, is that like once the French people really look over the precipice uh, with her, they tends to swing back away from her. But just the fact that we're having this conversation is worrying. And just the fact that she, you know she may come closer than last time is worrying about where the trend lines are going, even after the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine. Um, it, it does suggest to me the need for Macron to do some real work here. Uh, and by the way, like, you know, the, like just splitting left and right may get you through, but it's not building like a, a viable sense of where France is going, right? Like you said, it's not addressing this kind of creeping, increasing levels of of of, of xenophobia that you worry about. Uh, in other words, I mean, we, I may be betraying my own politics here, but maybe move a little bit to the left here to give give, give some of those people something to, to believe in and right. um, and connect Fire to. You, right? Uh, if you're if you're not going to appeal to the far right, I'd rather you try to build some support to your left too. Um, so it's worth watching, and it's, it's worrisome. And I think that Macron, who has some real political talent, like I, I, we've been negative. I mean, you know, he's he's a very talented politician, much more talented than Francois Hollande, uh, the previous French president, probably than Sarkozy. But he's got to get back out there and do the work. Yeah, the uh, the the Palais de Elysee strategy is not working. There was um there was a cartoon in one of the big papers, like Le Figaro or something, that was. Uh, Macron about to address a big rally and holding his cell phone, being like, "Hold on, Vladimir, I got to do these chores. I'll get yeah. right back to you." Yeah, <laughs> you know, sort of yeah. treating the people as an afterthought. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles: "Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass." Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Speaking of this sort of same theme, Ben, so bad news out of Hungary. Not only did uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban win a fourth term, but he won by a bigger margin than expected. The last numbers I saw had his Fidesz party getting about 53 uh, in the opposition coalition, getting 35% of the vote. Obviously, as you discussed in great detail uh, in the interview last week, you know this was not a free or fair election. Uh, the, the Orban gerrymanders the parliament. He controls the media. But it's an ugly outcome. And Orban true to form, uses victory speech to attack his opponents, attack the EU, attack the mainstream media, and attack President Zelensky, of all people. Um, any thoughts from you on this depressing outcome and, and how we should read it? Yeah, I, I have a bunch of thoughts, just given how much I've tried to immerse myself in Hungarian politics the last few years. Um, and, and I've been checking in with some of the opposition people I know. This was a devastating uh, result. Because, um, you know, I, I don't think anybody... It was a long, long shot, given how rigged the playing field was, as we talked about last time. So we don't have to revisit that. But, you know, Orban wasn't, wasn't exactly a fair election. But still, he outperformed. And I make a few points. The first is, one of the worrying things is that the opposition decided to have this big tent strategy where all the different opposition parties banded together, which seemed like a smart mm -hmm. strategy. But part of what that did yep. is that the the previously far-right party in the opposition bloc, Orban really went after those voters and got a bunch of those people. And in fact, an even more far-right party popped up such that the, the Hungarian parliament is going to be a pretty significant majority for Orban's party plus even crazier far-right people. And so we really have to keep our eye on the status of civil society and the press in Hungary and 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 does does Orban continue to move in the kind of Putinist direction here? That's the first point. I think the second point is, interestingly, um, because he dominated the media, and we talked about this with Catalan last week, um, he closed on a message that if the opposition won, they were going to get them into war in Ukraine somehow. And apparently that was mm -hmm. very effective, you know, and, yeah. and, and this is what happens when you control the media. You know, you can say, oh, if, if the opposition wins, they're going to go to war in Ukraine. Uh, and, and so I think that speaks to like just, again, needing to get information into people in these places where autocrats have kind of built a media dominance. I think the Zelensky thing, what, you know, 
uh, he talked about this is a victory over Zelensky and George Soros. Tommy, what do those guys have in common? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Jewish, right? Subtle. It was not subtle. Yep. Um, and so this speaks to the character of who Viktor Orban is. But in like reflecting where to go, um, you know, I, I, and you heard me talk about this last week, I, I've been, I, I thought it was an intriguing strategy by the Hungarian opposition to band together. But they banded together and the person they chose to get behind as their prime minister candidate was the most conservative amongst the Hungarian opposition, right? And that didn't work because people were like, well, you know, like if the opposition's putting a big tent and they've got this conservative guy who's their candidate and they've got a far right party in their tent, um, maybe I'll just go with like the real thing, right? And it might suggest, uh, and this is something we're gonna have to like pressure test with other um, other countries, uh, which I'll get to in one second, but like maybe they should have gone with like the, the stronger alternative, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, you, yeah. know, you know what, like maybe the way the, you know, it's always a debate and we have the debate here in the U.S. Is, do you beat a, a right-wing autocrat with like a more conservative center left person, or do you try to just be who you are? And it may right. be that the yeah. Hungarian opposition needs to be like, this is who we are. We believe in these values. You know, I think we failed them, the United States and the European Union, the European Union today triggered what's called the rule of law mechanism, which is something that allows them to kind of exert more pressure on Orban. The day after the election, I think the EU yeah, and the US time, should have been, yeah, EU and the US should have been more outspoken before this election about the danger of Viktor Orban instead of, you know, ending up issuing warnings the day after. And the last thing I'd say is that I hope that people don't give up hope in Central and Eastern Europe and places where they're experiencing this. Um, you know, apathy is what Orban wants to grind you down with. Um, and that has been the case in Serbia, uh, where there's an election as well. There's upcoming elections. Uh, I heard from somebody in the Slovenian opposition, not a country we track very closely, but she said, you know, this could be demoralizing to our people, but we're building a movement here. We think we can win. We have to, to you know, care about places like Slovenia. We have to care about, uh, you know, because if one, if, if the dam breaks on these uh, autocrats that are gaining a stranglehold on politics in some of these countries, Hopefully that that can that can be contagious too. But this was a really shitty result, and and I I really feel bad for um, all my Hungarian friends who are kind of live in a, a a climate of even greater, I think, intimidation going forward. Yeah, really shitty result, and it frankly makes me nervous given all the economic turmoil we are going through and about to to go through more of, especially in Europe and in the um, U.S. Again, because yeah. the world isn't complicated enough. Yeah, in the U.S. because the world is not complicated enough. There is a a growing political crisis in Pakistan. So here's the backstory on that. Um, Pakistan's parliament was planning to hold a vote of no confidence on Prime Minister Imran Khan. The National Assembly in Pakistan can remove the prime minister from office with a simple majority vote. It looked like that was about to happen. Khan had pissed off the military last year. He lost their support. And there was a bunch of growing anger among you know the population over inflation. Members of the coalition started to fracture and turn on him. So to get ahead of that vote, Khan dissolved parliament prevented it from happening and called for new elections. Uh, dissolve the steel, Ben. I'm workshopping a couple of things here. So that went over about as well as you'd think uh, with the opposition parties. They accused him of staging a coup. They challenged his move before the Supreme Court. I believe there have been two days of hearings so far, but no decision as of when we started recording this on Tuesday. Um, it seems like there probably will be a new set of elections, but who knows? Meanwhile, Khan is out there claiming that this is an American conspiracy to take him down and everybody, I think, is basically watching to see if the Pakistani military gets more directly involved because I don't think any prime minister in Pakistan's history has served out uh, their full term because something like this happens. Uh, how nervous are you about this one, political turmoil in another nuclear-armed nation? I mean, it's it's very familiar, you know? I mean, it, like, we've seen this in Pakistan before. I mean, Imran Khan has hung on and he's kind of, played different sides and he's aligned himself with the military at times and been, you know, at odds with them at others. Um, he's clearly, you know, his, his efforts to, to hang on, uh, you know, have more than the whiff of, of desperation and, and soft autocracy on his part. Uh, although make no mistake, as you say, like the military is ultimately behind it. Uh, I mean, I, again, like, like, the risk of having like a dark uh, series of conversations that like the uh, the 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 state of democracy in Pakistan just feels like it 
it's like, you know, half step forward, two steps back again and again, right? And um, I think, you know, you want to make sure that that if you're, whatever the U.S. role is or other countries, um, that the focus is on the institutional processes, the focus is on trying to find democratic mechanisms to actually resolve a crisis. The problem is Pakistan more and more um, has been, you know, closer to China and Russia, um, and, and, and so I don't have a lot of faith, right, that that's uh, that, that what's going to happen, that the out, outcome of this is going to be resolved through democratic means, you know. And I wish that weren't the case. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that is I was listening to um, uh, an economist reporter, I think he was a bureau chief in Pakistan, who was saying that uh, the military actually might view Khan as too anti-west that they're they're yeah. they didn't the you know army chief denounced the russian invasion of ukraine they feel like they're getting too dependent on china and they want to rebalance in that sense which is you know an interesting political dynamic you know i mean khan prime minister khan he's an interesting guy he was a cricket, cricket star yeah, yeah. kind of a man about town lothario who now pretends he's like devoutly religious and this is his new identity and he you know demagogues the west to, to you know, gain political favor. Well, Who let knows me, let, yeah, where he will take this. But, yeah, you know. I was just going to say, Tommy. Like, uh, I was, you know, for a guy who demagogues the West, and he really has moved in that direction. And and he, who guy who was in Russia, like right, like right as the invasion was uh, beginning, uh, meeting with Vladimir Putin. The chances that that guy is going to be where I am right now in London. Uh, in a few weeks, is not is not not zero, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I just uh, I, and I think you're right. The Pakistani military, um, for all of its obvious you know orientation towards China and 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 some of their hostility to the West, they do like to have kind of optionality and some degree of room for maneuver. Um, and and so the interesting thing to watch is like how some of this criticism of Khan from people who are sincerely concerned about his anti-democratic behavior merges with the military calculation. And then whether that leads the military to want to dump Khan overboard or uh, leads them to to back him, you know, that's ultimately where, uh, tragically, that's where this is most likely to be decided uh, rather than yeah. through real democratic means. Yeah. So we'll watch this one closely over the next week or two and probably do more on next week's show. The other place we're watching closely is Sri Lanka because- you know, combination of economic mismanagement by the president, inflation, food shortages, energy blackouts are, you know, have led to a situation where protesters are on the verge of toppling, toppling the Sri Lankan government. Uh, the president, Rajapaksa, his cabinet resigned en masse on Sunday in response to these massive protests. You know, it doesn't seem like that was a real resignation. It seems like these protesters... Uh, it seems like the the cabinet members are basically being reshuffled, and you're seeing like the you know the interior minister becomes the finance minister, you know like silly moves like that. One of them already resigned. Um, Forty one members of parliament quit the governing coalition on Tuesday. Um, so Rajapaksa's decision back in the day, a couple of years ago, to cut taxes has led to a credit downgrade that led to a debt crisis for Sri Lanka. That combined with COVID-related drops in tourism just hit their economy really hard, and people are really struggling. It seems like they they won't have enough foreign currency pretty soon. Um, again, we're going to get into this more next week, and I, I don't want to, you know, combine these issues with too broad of a brush here because clearly there are some very specific mistakes in terms of economic management and governance that have led to this outcome. But I do worry about just seeing more and more stories like this, where there's inflation and economic hardship because of COVID, because of all the supply chain issues that we're dealing with here, because of oil and gas shortages, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that could lead to political instability. So one we will watch closely. Yeah. And the only thing I'd add is that like Sri Lanka, you know, coming out of that, uh, the civil war uh, that ended in the kind of really decisive and in, in, in troubling and in execution, obviously, a defeat of the the Tamil insurgency there, you know, over the last 2009, few, 2010. Yeah. It was the beginning of, of our ministry, you know, Obama administration, Obama administration uh, yeah. 09, uh, 10, it's kind of veered back and forth between at times looking like it was drifting to kind of autocracy. Then there was kind of a democratic opening that looked very promising and then it drifted back in the other direction. And so it's kind of a, you put it in the right context, Tommy, it's kind of this bellwether, right? Of like, 
if you're like this, you know, developing um, democracy, you know, which way are the the global winds blowing, you know? Um, And right now, because of the the democratic recession combined with all the headwinds around inflationary pressures and um, uh, the inequality inside of countries like, you know, it feels like those things are moving in the wrong direction. And it also in that region, right? You know, we just talked about Pakistan. We've talked about India before in the direction it's going in, which is not the democratic direction. Um, and Sri Lanka, um, you do worry about, you know, is demo- democracy and, and, and kind of rules-based rule of law resolution of, of political crises. You just want to make sure that that, that, maintains a foothold to weather these storms, right? And I think that's the kind of thing uh, to watch in these types of political crises uh, in all these places. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, Okay, this is what counts for a good news story today, Ben, and I'm sorry it's been so dark. So the United Nations uh, brokered a two-month ceasefire in Yemen that started on Saturday. That ceasefire has allowed aid relief to get in, uh, oil shipments to reach critical ports for the first time in I think nearly three months. That that lack of of oil or fuel has been one of the key drivers of starvation because you know you can't deliver food to people who are outside of the uh, major cities. I think everyone is holding their breath and hoping that this ceasefire holds because it would be uh, the most important step towards peace in I think six years. The goal, you know, in the short term is to get this humanitarian relief to people. The goal in the long term is to push for full peace talks. Um, I know, Ben, I really, w- I, I want to see this work. I'm hopeful. I saw Congressman Brokana today, I think was on the Hill, pushing the Secretary of Defense to make sure the U.S. reacts if the Saudis violate this ceasefire, not just if the Houthi rebels, who they've been fighting for the last, you know, 10 years or so, violate the ceasefire. But I'm just curious how you're feeling uh, about this ceasefire and how hopeful you are that it could sort of lead to a a, a set of talks that get to us to a to a um, peaceful resolution of the fighting. I mean, you, you know, you you take any hope you can get in a circumstance like Yemen, where there's been such horrific suffering, and it's Ramadan, um, and, and, and so you hope that the 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 season can kind of lead create a, a space for um, a more lasting um, ceasefire that can lead to real talks. Um, notably, this came after like a lot of consultations, right? Like we talked about, I think on the last show, you know, all the different Arab leaders getting, you know, there, there's kind of a flurry of meetings in the Middle East. Tony Blinken was there. Um, so my hope is that this represents like a real momentum in the direction of what can become a political process. The problem in the past has been when there have been sporadic ceasefires, they, they don't lead to any real dialogue or process. And then you know, any event can trigger an unraveling of the ceasefire, right? By either side, as Rokana points out, like the Houthis or the Saudis and, and their coalition. Um, I'd like the U.S. to put on the table, like, that we won't support in any way a resumption of hostilities from the Saudi side, and that includes providing any... That would milk, be good. You know, that would be, that would be... We have some leverage here, right? We, we obviously... You know, we've all sure learned do. you can't tell the Saudis what to do, but like we can't tell them that we won't provide them any military support whatsoever for resumption of hostilities in Yemen. That might be one way to make this stick, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, that kind of that kind of solution has to be on the table, too, here, where the U.S. is actually really kind of bringing some weight to bear and trying to, to, to turn this into a lasting peace. I'm sure that the regional dynamic will also factor in. Um, whether there is an Iran deal, right? <laughs> Which we've been on the precipice of an Iran uh, a return to the Iran nuclear deal for a while. Um, I think some of the yeah, anxiety, yeah, and some of the anxieties in the Gulf have always been, well, is that some pivot from the U.S. to Iran? And no, it's not. Like it, 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 that's about the nuclear issue, and it's not about Yemen. Like you, these things, unfortunately, all get conflated. And um, but I, again, I think like the, there's been so much suffering in Yemen. Um, nobody's going to win that war, right? The Houthis are not going to win that war decisively in the Saudis. Not, like we have learned that. So the choice is between just protracted conflict that kills more and more innocent people for no reason or just making a ceasefire stick and actually having some political negotiation in which everybody accepts that they're going to get less than everything they want. And, and, and I think everything has to be about it being the latter outcome. Yeah, I mean, the Saudis are already giving us the finger when it comes to... Uh 
demanding more yeah, oil production. Yeah, I, so I don't we know might why. Well just yeah. uh, put put the squeeze on them to end this war. Um, two more quick things, Ben. So the Senate finally reached a deal to provide uh, another ten billion in COVID assistance. Notably, uh, for this show's purposes, they cut five billion in funding for global aid. So the good news is it includes uh, 9.25 billion for biomedical research, another 5 billion to purchase therapeutic COVID treatments like antivirals. All this money is going to come from unspent funds left over from previous COVID relief bills. Um, but it's so stupid and short-sighted <laughs> that they would cut this global vaccination funding. I mean, the White House is clearly pissed. It sounds like Schumer is going to try to pass more international COVID relief funding later this year. Maybe he'll attach it to a Ukraine aid bill, and that would be a good way to get it through. But uh, the White House announced they're sending vaccine doses for kids age 5 to 11 to low- and middle-income countries today. So the White House is trying to get some of this international aid out there. It just seems like Congress is making it hard. This is the dumbest fucking thing. I can't even believe we're having this conversation. It's so stupid. We've had Samantha Power on the show. Like the, the shots on in arms in other countries is directly related to this funding. And if you cut the funding, it's less shots in arms because the United States is the only country that's really out there at scale with the capacity to do this. This is dumb and, and, and reckless and, and idiotic on every level. It's immoral and inhumane that the United States, as the most capable and richest country in the world, is not doing more, and not because of people like Samantha, but because of these freaking morons in Congress, to get shots in arms in other countries. But it's also going to prolong the pandemic. And Like, Tommy, I am not one of these people who is an armchair epidemiologist, right? Beyond like- No, me either. Like, you know, I, I, most, I mostly hate them on Twitter. I know. I don't tweet about this like because I know what I don't know. But like, here's what I do know, because anybody with two eyes and a brain has seen this the last you know year. If this thing rages unchecked around the world, you're going to get more likelihood of variant after variant that comes in here and fucks our shit up, right? So if you don't even care about people in other countries, and I wish you did, I wish people in Congress did, but they don't seem to unless they live in like two or three countries. Like if you don't care about those people, like it's this is so manifestly also a matter of self-interest to do this. Uh, shame on Congress. I wish you were wearing your call Congress shirt. As you, you like, th- th- this, is the, mm. th- this, is, this is moronic to the extreme, immoral to the extreme. Every dollar spent on international vaccination is a dollar that protects us, enhances our standing, and does the basic humane minimum that we should be doing. So come on, get your act together. And yes, Chuck Schumer, like find ways to attach this to must pass spending bills, whether it's Ukraine or whatever the other thing is that members of Congress love to pop, put it with Iron Dome. Maybe maybe we can have an Iron Dome. There you go. Um, a, a gazillion dollars for Iron Dome to Israel with like a, a big chunk of COVID funding. And, and then they'll vote for it maybe. I don't know, right? Like whatever it takes, just get it done. That's creative. Yeah, just don't make me lock down in my house for another two years. I don't think I could do it again. Okay, Congress, learn your lesson. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, you will hear my interview with Anastasia Lapatina, who's a reporter for the Kiev Independent, who's going to talk about what it's like to live in Ukraine and report from Ukraine uh, in the middle of this war. So stick around for that. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. On the line is Anastasia Lapatina, who's a reporter for the Kiev Independent, who is currently reporting from Lviv. Thank you so much for joining the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, I um, First of all, I want to say that I follow you on Twitter. Everyone else should, too. It's uh, at L-A-P-A-T-I-N-A underscore, because you are reporting in real time, not just about what's happening in Ukraine, but about your experience of it as someone who is living through this experience and also 
being a reporter. And so I just want, want to sort of start there. Um, you know, the images and stories we saw this weekend at Abuka are horrifying. It's clear that Russian forces are committing war crimes. Um, you know, what is this like for you? You're covering this and experiencing it in such a personal way. You've tweeted about the impact of, of uh, the war on your mom and on your home and family. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, of course. Um, it's It's been extremely weird to try to combine that with my journalism because at the end of the day, you know, um, you, you kind of think like, oh, am I, am I being too biased? Am I being too emotional? Should I be more, you know, more behind all of this and kind of more cold about it? But it is impossible because this is my country and it is my home that's being affected and it's mm -hmm. my family you know, the houses that I've grown up in and everything else. So it's it's actually been, well, I'm not going to surprise anyone if I say that it's been pretty much hell um, living through this war. We're at day 40, I believe, today, uh, which is surreal to say even because, um, you know, my <laughs> I keep on joking that my birthday is coming up in May. I hope they're going to wrap it up and I can go home and celebrate in Kiev. Um, and I, I, I genuinely wish that I, I can do that. But um, yeah, I just, the reason why I, you know, tweet so much about it and, and, and spread this message, you know, that this is my house, this is my apartment, this is someone I know, is because, as cliche as that may sound, these are human stories that I think are extremely important. And uh, I think, you know, the longer this goes on, uh, the more people are going to get desensitized to hearing about these things. And I really want to prevent like people not to be that. And I really want to prevent that from happening. So I think it's just extremely important to understand that, first of all, that I think there is this fundamental gap in understanding war and conflict and politics and, you know, the effect of everything that we're going through mm -hmm. between someone who has never gone through it. That may yeah. sound obvious, but I think it's impossible uh, to fill that gap, no matter how much you read the books, no matter how much you watch the documentaries, talk to people from the Middle East, Africa, anywhere else, um, it's just impossible because, you know, I've been obviously a political junkie my whole life. Um, I've followed in all sorts of conflicts. I have friends in Syria, I have friends in Iraq, I have friends in Palestine. And until this war began, I really thought I in a way, got what they're going through. I thought that, you know, I tried as, as hard as I could to be empathetic, to understand what's going on, to hear their voices. But the second it was my city that was getting bombed, and the second that it was my people um, who were being killed, and the second it was my country where a genocide was committed, my understanding of that just skyrocketed. You know, and I am actually in touch, you know, with all of my friends, you know, as I said, in Syria and Iraq, Constantly, because I feel like there is no one else other than Ukrainians and people who have gone through the same thing can actually, you know, understand me and understand what I'm going through. And uh, and I remember anytime I see activists, you know, Palestinian activists or any other activists, you know, being what people would call radical or, you know, posting these images of dead kids and being like, look, the West, this is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I'd always be like, oof, you know, like guys, you know, like we, we get it, but you know, come on. Whereas now, like, that's exactly what I'm doing yeah. because I think that now it, now it, now it makes sense to me. Now I see that, you know, when I say that kids here are getting slaughtered and bureaucrats in Europe are, are thinking whether should we press for this one more sanction or should we not press for it? Because, you know, that can backfire in 10 years. Like as a Ukrainian, that is just ludicrous to me. Um, so, you know, you, you, as a Ukrainian, we, I, I have this huge increase in understanding and empathy towards people all over the world who feel the same frustration as I do. And uh, it's just been very interesting to see and watch, you know, myself go through that. Yeah, I mean, it's such an important and, and thoughtful point. I mean, what, what does bias even mean in this context, right? I mean, I obviously, like, I'm zooming with you from America, a country that massively fucked up the reporting and fact-checking in the run-up to the evasion in Iraq and did something catastrophically bad for the world. But in the case of Russia and Ukraine, one side invaded the other. It's Ukrainian civilians who were seeing images of, you know, bound and killed in the streets. You know, you, you tweeted something the other day where parents were writing 
their contact information on the backs of children. Um, I'm just not sure how you can't react emotionally or, or feel biased in that situation. Yeah, and I was very surprised in a way to see the response to that tweet because, you know, that's one of my most viral tweets ever. Um, and the people who have been retweeting it and continue retweeting it are, you know, German MPs and European politicians and uh, American reporters from Fox, you know, and, I, and I'm seeing all of that and I'm like, really, guys? I mean, I, I almost kind of want to tweet back and be like, thank you so much for tweeting and saying how you're heartbroken and how you're reminiscing that this could be your child. But could you actually go and do like and, and do your part in, in stopping this? Because you guys can, you know, um, because the, to, to this tweet specifically, you know, like I, I watch my mentions uh, generally and this tweet has just been blown up exactly in those circles. It's politicians, it's journalists, it's high level people who, you know, who have influence. And I, I'm just so glad seeing that it's getting there. You know, I'm so glad that I just posted that this image that may have, it's probably not shocking to Ukrainians. This is just our everyday life. You know, I, I, I've interviewed people who had to write the blood type of their children or on their arms. Like I've seen those arms, I've seen those photos. I've, I've spoken to these people. To me, this is just, yeah, it, it, there is a war. You have to take a precaution. But seeing everyone so shocked, I, you know, I'm glad that it's getting out there and people are seeing that this is just our reality. Yeah. Um, you know, so these horrifying images and the atrocities that we're learning about in places like Bucha, is that changing how Ukrainians feel about the peace talks that we're hearing about happening in Istanbul between the Ukrainian and the Russian sides? Yes, I think that what happened in Bucha certainly in a way changed both the national mood and the international mood as well. Um, you know, we see states pressing for more sanctions. We see the EU being, you know, more um, more kind of acting in a more severe way now with its rhetoric and with its sanctions as well in response to what happened, because what, what it was is it was a genocide. I mean, you have hundreds of people killed, and that's from what we saw. You know, journalists who, are, who, who were there today, who were there yesterday, say that, guys, it's not in the hundreds. It can be even in the thousands because you know there have been it's been a few days since we've really seen what happened and there are dead people in like every other apartment in every other yard just civilians slaughtered and many of them literally with their hands tied behind their backs and many of them are children some children are raped i mean what is it if it's not a genocide you know so um yes there's definitely a shift of mood and i watched a press conference today um i think the press conference itself happened yesterday i may be wrong but um, it was basically like a like a round table with many Ukrainian journalists mm -hmm. posing questions to Zelensky, to our president. And one of them asked, um, considering, you know, what happened in Bucha, uh, are, are, are the talks going, you know, business as usual? Or is there any shift? So it's clear that there is this public demand for a shift. It's clear that people are, 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 are wondering whether, you know, whether we're going to respond in some way, whether some approach is going to be different. But, you know, we are dealing with Putin. So it's, it, it, it's, it's as, as Zelensky actually said in that response to this journalist, is like, we, we will not be able to get everything we want because that's not how negotiations work and especially not how negotiations with Russia work. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible. And he, he, and, and he, you know, repeated himself multiple times. He just said it's impossible. We can't just get everything. You know, we can't just have a ceasefire, get into NATO, get into EU, return Crimea, return to bus and live as, as this never happened. Like that's just not gonna happen. Yeah. But it's clear that people, people want to shift in narrative and actions, yes. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, these German politicians retweeting you. I mean, there's reports uh, today that in, in the wake of what we've seen in Bucha, that, you know, Germany is expelling Russian diplomats. There's talk of more sanctions. Um, but not much else. I mean, what, what more do you think people want to see from the West and NATO it, it, after seeing these images? Definitely, you know, more sanctions and sanctions that, you know, target what should be targeted. I, I had a conversation with actually um, a Russian guy. He's not like a friend. He's just someone I know. He's just a public figure. And we, it, it, it turned out that he followed me on social media and he posted something about the word that I disagreed with. Um, and 
I responded to him and he responded back to me and we ended up having a conversation and that was very interesting because he's this, you know, typical Russian liberal, uh, lives in the US, uh, opposes the war, etc., etc. Um, and even he himself said that, you know, you block Airbnb to, to Russian citizens, you take out McDonald's, but then there are still a bunch of companies, for example, oil infrastructure companies, so not mm-hmm. the companies that are actually involved in extracting oil and gas and whatever, but the ones that sustain everything else after you've extracted it. So no one is talking about those companies. Those companies continue functioning business as normal, you know, and, and those are the companies that should be targeted and people should be talking about it, but everyone cares, you know, about McDonald's and, and, and you know, other regular stores, uh, which, of course, I do as well. It, you know, I... I, I enjoy seeing all of these sanctions because I think people should be punished. But at the same time, there are more targeted sanctions that should be pressed. And the second thing is we just need all the weapons that they can possibly give us. And uh, the Kiev Independent just released a uh, an op-ed today saying that Ukraine should be able to just ask for weapons and receive it immediately at this point, you know, because... It is actually kind of ridiculous that it's not already happening with, you know, the pictures we're seeing from Bucha, with, with what's happening in Mariupol. I mean, the city, like, no longer exists. I, I don't know how many pictures I have to, like, continue tweeting and how many people have to get out of that hell and, and, and you know, and, and give interviews for people to understand what's happening there. Because there is not a single building in Mariupol that hasn't been damaged or completely destroyed. Not a single one. I mean, the, they raised it to the ground. And we're still having discussions about whether a particular type of plane, you know, is admissible, about whether, you know, we can have offensive weapons. Can someone explain to me, uh, I mean, Tommy, you're much smarter than me. Can you explain to me what is an offensive Unlikely. weapon as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to a defensive weapon? What is an inherently defensive weapon that we can give, that we can't use in an attack? Yeah. I, I don't know. Exactly. I, I, I mean, I, 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 I've... Exactly. Like I've Googled it a few times because I was like, everyone keeps talking about it, but what are these things, you know? So it's it's crazy to me that there are still these discussions on whether this type of weapon can be shipped to Ukraine. We need all of them. Whatever we ask for you, we should be getting because there's genocide happening. There's the slaughter of innocent civilians, thousands and thousands of them. There shouldn't be a discussion. And I don't think that's radical. I think that's just necessary. No, it doesn't seem radical. I, I, I worry that... Um these discussions are getting wrapped around questions of legality that are, and when, you know, I think sort of a practical matter, it's like if, if a country is being invaded, what they're doing to repel an invader seems inherently defensive to me. So therefore I would give the S-300s or the MiGs or all these systems that are asked for. I'm just like not really sure how NATO or the U.S. is drawing these lines. They feel a little bit arbitrary to me. Um, I, you know, it seems like these unmanned aerial systems, the drones, the Turkish drones that have been very effective would be very useful. Yes. There's the, the American single use drones that went over recently. Those seem very useful. I would, I, I hope that, um, they would not make it so difficult to get those systems into Ukraine at this point. It, it, because it's just, you know, there was this whole talk about, you know, close the sky, close the sky. And there were protests all over the world. Uh, you know, um, there were speeches, there were very dramatic speeches by Zelensky. Now, everyone kind of dropped that because we just realized that the West isn't going to do it. And the, but the, and we were like, okay, guys, sure, if you're saying no to this, we're going to back off. And there's still a discussion about whether they can send us something. I, I gen- I'm genuinely surprised, you know. If we already we already said no to one thing. Now what we're asking is just give us something to stop our people from getting killed. You know, I don't think there should be a discussion. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, uh, You know, one last question. I mean, what do you make of these reports that, you know, you have all of these Ukrainian citizens who have friends or relatives in Russia who they are reaching out to and saying, this is what's happening to us. Look at the reports, look at this article. And these Russian citizens just don't believe what they're saying. They think it's all propaganda. Are you hearing those sort of anecdotes in your personal life as well? Of course. I mean, it's everyone in my own family as well. Um, my my dad's side of the family, um, that we're not very close with them because I, I've never actually been to Russia. Uh, I've, I've never seen them. They're just distant family. But um, yeah, they, you know, they sent us a text message saying, you know, we hope there's going to be peace soon. And, you know, like some vague shit that didn't wasn't actually helpful to me or my mom um my best friend she's half ukrainian half russian her side of the family in russia 
are just completely like for the longest time they didn't even reach out to them you know like to her father um and now they're just pretending like you know like they have nothing to do with it they're just kind of like oh but it's not russia it's everywhere i you know it, it is literally everywhere and i think it's of course incredibly sad but it also pushes against the narrative uh that is just putin and um that that's a very big thing in you know of course ukrainian society right now that we're trying to show to people that it isn't putin who's giving orders to rape children right it isn't putin who is flying those planes and when you have the ukrainian government saying that guys you can come up with your hands in the air you can surrender we're going to give you money you're we're going to give you amnesty we're going to let you call your mom and then after this is over you can just go home you know when we spread that message when we, you know we've seen all of these pictures of 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 soldiers surrendering and ukrainians not putting a single finger on them you know like we're literally give them tea and cigarettes you know when this is the environment when they're that they're in and they still decide to go into my family's house steal a bunch of shit including my mom's shoes what the hell do they need my mom's shoes for mm, you know yeah. and, or like female underwear like there are photos of of streets full of like female underwear because as they were like running away you know they just dropped all of it like what what has to go through her mind to do that and it, so it, those are not putin's orders those are russians who are who you know who are doing this on purpose yeah. um and that goes for you know all of our family members who you know you're sitting in a bomb shelter and you're sending them audio messages videos of you getting bombed and they're telling you that it's the nazis ukrainian nazis who don't exist <laughs> you know it's just so, completely crazy just yeah propaganda i agree with you i mean there's definitely propaganda there's brainwashing whatever's happening but also you're right i mean no one is telling uh, an average soldier to loot a home of a civilian on the way out the door i mean that's that's a personal choice um last question i promise just any final thoughts or messages for you know a mostly american audience about what's happening and what they can do to help and try to you know push for for more support for ukraine well, I think what we all really need is just more financial support and whoever uh, is able to help financially should do that. There are plenty of websites, plenty of organizations. Um, you know, our civil society made it as easy as possible for you guys um, in the West to find where to put your money in. So, you know, Googling it shouldn't be too difficult. Yeah. Um, and also just realizing that um, this isn't just about Ukraine or this isn't just about Russia. This is like genuinely about the free world and, and, and about Europe and about the entire political system that we've known to be a thing since the last few decades, you know. So th this isn't some, uh, you know, although I, I'm not I'm not comparing the suffering or the destruction, but this isn't something very, very far off that you can just ignore because, you know, when I was in Poland, multiple people told me that. Polish people that the reason why they're helping so much is that they very clearly understand that they're going to be next. Mm -hmm. Putin isn't just stopping in Ukraine, you know, Putin, Putin is not going to stop, you know, if he isn't stopped. So uh, people just have to realize that this is going to come to them. This is going to come to Europe. So, you know, you guys should just do everything possible to support us. And we're going to try to do everything possible to protect us and you as well in Europe. Well, listen, Anastasia, thank you so much for, for talking with us today. Um, and I'm so sorry that you Thank are you living for inviting this me. nightmare. Hopefully it ends soon. Hopefully it ends by your birthday, if not a hell of a lot earlier, because uh, you deserve that. May 14th. Yes. Fingers crossed. All right. Fingers crossed. Thank you. Of course. Thanks again to Anastasia for joining the show. Uh, ben, thanks to you for staying up late. Uh, London time. How's the time zone treating you now? Uh, you know... You get a you, you know you get older and like this gets harder you know like, I used to like bounce out oh, of bed yeah. you know uh, I'm like finding myself like napping you know uh, in the late afternoon but I have to say like we will have to cover the World Cup draw at some point I'm here in the UK mm. I'm here in England um, and obviously we've got England Ireland um, and potentially Ukraine but maybe Scotland or Wales in our draw that's a world of draw if I've ever heard of one right so like you, we could do a yeah. whole show on that you know. That's a good one. That is a good draw. I also saw a BBC report that um, two stolen notebooks written by Charles Darwin were mysteriously returned to Cambridge University 22 years after they were taken. I noticed that um, curiously overlapped with your trip. Do you have any comment? 
Got nothing to say about that, Tommy. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing you, to say about you, that or the you, you, the Tory MP that was, you know, like uh, in the headlines when I landed here. The Coke party. You were famously uh, anti-evolution, anti-cocaine. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's it for today. <laughs> it's like midnight your time. So thanks for doing it. And uh, I don't know. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Posse of the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. you know and trust is now angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember angie's list is now angie and we're here to get your job done right get started at angie.com that's a-n-g-i or download the app today